Join Global Genes at the 2002 Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego, September 12th through the 14th. We'll be returning to an in-person event this year, and our theme is Rare Life Bonded Together. If you can't make the trip, the event will be available virtually as well. To register for the in-person or virtual summit, go to globalgenes.org and look under the events tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While biologics and gene therapies have altered what it means to have a rare disease for many people, one problem with these treatments is that they can trigger an immune response that can make a patient ineligible for gene therapies or render a medicine ineffective. Selective Biosciences is developing a platform technology called mTOR that trains the immune system with precision not to react to specific antigens. We spoke to Karsten Brunn, president and CEO of Selecta, about the problem of immunogenicity to biologics, the company's mTOR platform, and how it's leveraging that platform with a growing pipeline of biologics and gene therapies. Karsten, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Selecta, its mTOR platform technology, and its strategy for building a pipeline across various therapeutic modalities. Biologics ranging from enzyme replacement therapies to gene therapies hold great promise for treating rare diseases. One of the challenges, though, is that these therapies can trigger unwanted immune responses. How big a problem does this represent, and does it ever prevent a promising therapy from reaching the market? Great question, and the answer is yes and yes. It is a big problem. Um, everything you give um, as a drug, as a biologic, usually elicits immune, immune response, um, and uh, which oftentimes renders the biologic ineffective or less effective. Um, so it, it, does, it does have an impact. Obviously, it depends on how immunogenic uh, the biologic is. Some are humanized. Um, there's less of an issue, but in general, it's it's a, it's a large issue that uh, also the FDA is always looking at. Uh, immunogenicity is is a big um, is a big challenge. And specifically, if you look at some of the modalities that we are pursuing, uh, one obviously is um, enzymes that are immunogenic, so they are of either bacterial or fungal origin. Um, so they're foreign to the body, uh, and you can only give them one time because um, the body has a strong immune response, and that's where our technology comes in. It in, enables the redosing, so it makes it tolerable for the body. Uh, another good example is gene therapy. Um, obviously, these are viral vectors that are immunogenic. You only give one dose, uh, which is... Uh, challenging because it's not as durable as we initially thought. So, so the answer is yes, it's a, it's a big problem uh, for all those modalities. Then of course, there's the, ult the ultimate modality, which is autoimmune disease, which is a growing problem uh, in the United States where 
the antigen actually is an autoantigen. Um, so that's a big problem that we are focusing on more and more um, as a company. I'm sure we'll have a chance to, uh, to talk about this. What happens within the immune system to cause this type of response to a biologic therapy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a, a natural uh, response that actually, that's actually good and keeps us alive. That means if you are, uh, you know, if you have a pathogen that enters your, your bloodstream, um, the immune system is responding, uh, producing antibodies. So the next time you're exposed to it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect you as much. So it's, it's, a, it's a natural defense mechanism. But obviously, uh, in, in the case of drugs or biologics, it renders them ineffective. That's really the, the, the challenge. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to prevent with, with our technology. It, it's not unusual for a patient being infused with a biologic to be pre-treated with something like Benadryl. You, you mentioned the, the immune response renders the therapies ineffective. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how much of a concern is that? Do they completely render them ineffective? And, and is there a risk to the long-term health of the patient? Can they get a, a severe enough response that it becomes life-threatening? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there are numerous antihistamine, like Benadryl is an antihistamine or steroids being used. Uh, and they're usually being used to prevent or reduce infusion-related reactions. So, um, you know, initial uh, allergic reaction to, to the product. And, uh, and of course, you don't want to give steroids long-term. Um, they do have a negative uh, you know, impact on your body. You, you don't want to immune-suppress patients long-term, uh, which is really the, the challenge. Um, that you know the the, the current modalities um, are immune suppression, uh, which means you're uh, prone to infections, um, you know, prone to certain cancers. Um, now, especially with with COVID, you know, even more relevant, you know, on a um, artificially uh, su suppressed immune system. Um, so there's a lot of limitations uh, around that, and uh, I think where we come in is that we're trying to address specifically the antigen. Um, so we have antigen-specific immune tolerance uh, that gets around the, the issues associated with broad immune suppression. Rapamycin is a, a drug that seems to generate excitement at doing everything from treating cancer to preventing aging. It, its history though is as an immune suppressant used to prevent organ rejection in transplantation. What does rapamycin do at a biologic level? Yeah, so rubamycin actually is a super interesting uh, compound and has an interesting history. Um, I mean, it was discovered about 50 years ago on the Easter Islands, um, uh, which are called Rapa Nui. Um, and, and, and you're right, they were initially as an antimicrobial then as an um, immune suppressant. Um, but it, it really, what, what it does, it plays a central role in uh, regulation of cell growth. Um, and that's why the various applications, uh, you know, for, as an immune suppressant, but also used in certain uh, in certain cancers. It's 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 been used uh, in anti-aging research. It extends life in in various organisms. So it's definitely a, a very a colorful and uh, a compound with a long history and. Uh, 
um, and we're trying to harness that with uh, you know with with our technology um, and and the, the exciting findings that uh, come out of Harvard Medical School, Uli von Andrian's lab, um, that basically showed that rapamycin in high doses in certain cells actually induces uh, immune tolerance. Well, how, how does rapamycin figure into your mTOR technology? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so mTOR is a, um, a biodegradable nanoparticle that encapsulates rapamycin, you know, the immune modulator rapamycin. Uh, and in, if you give rapamycin orally, it's an immune suppressant. Um, and what, you know, Uli van Anjan found, uh, who's an immunologist at Harvard, is if you target specific cells, um, antigen-presenting cells, or called dendritic cells, uh, you actually get a tolerogenic response instead of an immune suppressive. The challenge is how do you get this now um, into the body without triggering immune suppression? And, and really the trick here was to encapsulate the nanoparticle. Um, the nanoparticle is the size of a, you know, of, a, of a viral particle basically. And the body thinks, okay, this is a foreign object and we're gonna um, excrete this to the liver and the spleen. Uh, in the liver and the spleen, it's taken up by those potent antigen-presenting cells. And then in those cells, rapamycin is released and induces a tolerogenic message. Um, so it's kind of cloaked, if you like, and, until you get to the, the site of action and then it's released there in, in high concentration. Um, so, so in a sense, rapamycin is the active ingredient in mTOR, but has a different, very different pharmacology than if you give it orally, um, chronically, daily. And it's it's telling the immune system to be tolerant, but it ha, does it have to be associated with the particular biologic agent you're delivering? Yeah. So it um, what, the way we do this, um, there is a a therapeutic window, a time window um, where we give uh, we give mTOR first, and uh, and then immediately after we give the antigen as an infusion. This can be an enzyme, uh, it can be gene therapy, uh, and they, they basically uh, you know kind of co-localize. Um, and there's a window of about 24 hours um, where you have this tolerogenic window um, where they both have to be present. Um, that's also the reason why we have never seen really any, um, you know, increase in infection rates because it's a it's a, a time limited window where you 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 have that tolerogenic window where you produce so called T regulatory cells, uh, which tell the body that the antigen actually is not foreign and induce tolerance um, that way. So it's a very elegant way of of harnessing the immune system actually. In delivering therapies with this technology, though, are they conjugated or combined in any way, or is it just both delivered individually and independently? Yeah, and it's yeah. So that that makes it elegant as well. So it doesn't require any reformulation. Um, so we have now uh, human data uh, in combining mTOR with an enzyme, a highly immunogenic enzyme for the treatment of chronic factor gout. Uh, and you basically give an infusion of mTOR followed immediately by the actual enzyme, but it's not uh, reformed in any, in any way. Uh, and then the same for gene therapy, you infuse mTOR first and then it's followed uh, by the actual uh, AV gene therapy. So there's no reformulation needed. At the same time though, 
you have to test it with each individual therapy as opposed to seeking an approval for mTOR as a, a universal pretreatment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so for now, we see it on an indication by indication basis um, because you always have to run toxicology studies as well in, in, in each disease model. Um, down the line, we might be able um, to get more of a blanket approval for gene therapy if we have a couple approved. But for now, we you know we run basically studies from from scratch where we're testing the the toxicology first in various disease models. Um, so we don't at this point don't see it as a blanket approval. Um, I mean, it has very broad applicability, but from a regulatory path perspective and a and a patient safety perspective, we want to make sure that we we do this on a case by case basis. One of the concerns about the use of viral vectors, as you mentioned with regard to gene therapies, is that it prevents them from being redosable. That's raised a lot of concern about the durability of these therapies. How does mTOR potentially change that? Yeah, I think that's a very exciting um, application of mTOR and really has the potential to unlock the potential of gene therapy. And there was initially a lot of excitement around, you know, gene therapy is once and done, but it looks like that's not the case. Um, you know, AV, viral vectors don't self-replicate. That means over time, the cells get diluted down and uh, you see a loss of expression. And there's plenty of examples now um, out there where, you know, we clearly see that uh, over time, expression goes down, uh, efficacy goes down. Um, and because it's a viral vector, it's highly immunogenic, um, the body develops neutralizing antibodies and you can give a second dose. Um, what we're trying to do with mTOR is we give mTOR with the first dose of AV gene therapy to prevent the formation of neutralizing antibodies. And we're actually able to demonstrate this in a healthy volunteer study with an, with an um, empty AV capsid, so no transgene we're able to prevent the formation um, of neutralizing um, antibodies in a certain time frame, which is very exciting and really opens up uh, pretty broad uh, applicability across uh, at least liver-directed AV uh, gene therapy. Selecta is pursuing its own therapeutic pipeline, but it's also engaged with a growing list of collaborations to leverage the platform around enzyme replacement therapies, gene therapies, and therapies for autoimmune diseases. What role does partnering play in your business model? Yeah, partnering as a, as a platform company, partnering is critically important. Um, as a small company, there's only so many indications you can pursue, only so many um, you know, capabilities you can build in certain therapeutic areas. Um, so we obviously identified areas that we are focused on ourselves with our own proprietary pipeline, um, but partnerships are a very important way um, for us to get the technology into as you know many patients as possible, help as many patients as possible. It's a it's a way for us to finance the company as well. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. We've you know we have done a, a large partnership with Sobi for our lead asset, which is currently in phase three, um, which gave us a significant upfront of a hundred million and really allowed us to invest in the company and we're eligible to receive milestones and royalties down the line. Uh, it was an important validation for us. Um, we have partnerships in the gene therapy space, uh, most no notably with uh, Takeda, for example, where we license mTOR for two of their 
um, lysosomal storage disorder, AV uh, gene therapy programs. Um, so that it's an important way where there's always, you know, obviously financially attached, um, where we can finance the company with. But we also have partnerships uh, where we're leveraging other companies to develop our own products. For example, we're working with Ginkgo Bioworks, a synthetic biology player, uh, to develop a, a novel IgA protease. So where they're developing something for us, which we then take into the clinic. Um, but yeah, in general, uh, partnerships are, are quite important uh, for our business model. How do these partnerships generally work? And ultimately, would your partner be selling mTOR as part of their product? Or would you just both be selling your own product simultaneously? Yeah, so in, in, the, in um, the, the case of uh, Sobe, for example, we basically licensed them uh, both mTOR and the enzyme for a specific use in chronic effector gout. So they would be selling both. Um, we would be manufacturing mTOR for them, but they would be selling both products. Uh, in the case of Takeda, where we're combining mTOR, where they're planning to combine mTOR, um, with a, um, a gene therapy product, they would we would provide mTOR to them, and then they would uh, you know sell both as as a combination product. Uh, we also have a partnership with Sarepta, very similar for two of their lead indications, where we provide mTOR, and uh, they would sell this in combination with their gene therapy product. Given the broad applications of the technology. And building your own pipeline, how are you prioritizing your indications? Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a real challenge, and it's a real strategic um, objective for us to figure out. You know, where is it that we spend our our uh, our our dollars, and and uh, it's it's really uh, we've gone through a couple of iterations of the company, and where we are right now, we're very excited is to focus on. The use of mTOR um, and iteration of mTOR, which is mTOR IL, it's a combination with a, an engineered IL-2 molecule uh, for the use in autoimmune disorders. So if you look at our pipeline right now, we're really focusing mainly on autoimmune, autoimmune disorders. Um, we have a program in gene therapy as well, um, but we really see this rather as a strategic regulatory blueprint for our partners. So we kind of you know, have a clear path into the clinic from a regular perspective in gene therapy. Um, but our wholly owned programs are really focused on autoimmune disorders in the liver and kidney. And we think that's the sweet spot for us. Uh, mTOR naturally accumulates in the liver. Uh, our CMO is, a, is a, a well known hepatologist. So I think it's a natural fit for us where we want to focus um, uh, you know, our own efforts. I understand how mTOR works with regards to a, a, a biologic you're infusing or um, a gene therapy. In, in the case of an autoimmune disease, though, how does the body know what antigen you're presenting? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, the concept here in, in autoimmune dis diseases uh, is slightly different than what I described earlier. Um, in, in autoimmune disorders, you would also administer an autoantigen, and you would encapsulate this in another particle as well because you don't want to make the disease worse. But uh, you would co-administer the autoantigen in a particle with mTOR, so it gets delivered to those antigen-presenting cells 
um, together with mTOR. So that would be the, the, the therapy, the, the, the autoantigen uh, plus uh, the telogenic agent, which would be uh, mTOR. Is there a potential for this approach in something like a peanut allergy? Um, in, theoretically, yes, but and there's other uh, approaches that are being tested already, and and usually, um, you know, those those patients are fairly healthy. Otherwise, you know, obviously until they they meet a peanut, but. Um, uh, and I mean, obviously, rapamycin is not benign, and uh, so we're we're we haven't focused on allergies per se. Um, you know, another one is celiac disease, for example. Uh, so we have identified as a lead indication now uh, primary bilicholangitis, which is a liver-directed um, disease. Um, but theoretically, it would also uh, likely work in, in 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 peanut allergy and and other, but. Uh, in terms of uh, you know mechanism of action, we believe uh, liver and kidney-based diseases are a better strategic fit and uh, higher likelihood of technical success. Select raised thirty-eight point seven million in April. How far will existing funding take you? Yeah, um, great question. So we currently uh, have cash into mid uh, twenty twenty-four. And uh, which is in, in the current market environment, um, you know, a, a good cushion to have. Um, we have an important readout of our lead asset in partnership with Sobi in chronic factor gout in Q1 next year. That's obviously an important milestone for us. Uh, we're about to enter uh, the clinic in gene therapy uh, in Q4 this year. So we have some important catalysts, but we do have the cash um, to see all those through. And then, you know, we're developing our PBC program, we have a program in IGA nephropathy. So, so for now we're well financed um, and we have you know, important milestones that are additional uh, potential value drivers for, for the company. It's a, a difficult time to be a public biotech today. How does being a public biotech complicate your job and what's the conversation like with investors? I think it's 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 a difficult time for biotech period. I think um, both private companies and and public companies. Um, uh, I think right now, you know, in, in it's it's difficult to get time with investors. Um, uh, you know, many of them are licking their wounds from last year. Um, at the same time, there is capital to deploy, so we're still very active in investor outreach. It's just very targeted. Um, and I think what what helps us, uh, you know, we, we actually have pretty good traction at the moment is that we have uh, a late stage asset with, uh, you know, an important readout in, in Q1 next year, phase re readout. So it's a kind of a short term milestone, which is important. At the same time, a pretty broad, you know, applicability with the pipeline as well, which many investors do like. Um, but uh, it's definitely a, a challenging time, but it's also, I think, a much needed correction as well. I think the, the biotech market was uh, overheated. I think too many companies went public too early, you know, preclinical. So I think there's also a bit of a market correction uh, happening as well at the moment. Karsten Brunn, president and CEO of Selective Biosciences. Karsten, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.